Today, we are going to try something different with this sermon time and actually have more of a lecture or a biblical teaching. It's almost like a, a, a classroom, but what th- one of the things we want to do is make it interactive. So I'm going to be addressing uh, an issue that is a delicate one for some, an exciting one for others, the issue of uh, women in leadership and the scriptures teaching on that, and how in the world does our church get to the point where uh, we can take the position we do, which is a position that our denomination takes, It also happens to be ours, and still be a biblical. But we want you to be able to uh, ask questions. So at any time during the message, if you have a smartphone, you can send a message to Jeff at this, uh, at this address, grow at mcc.co, that is not a, uh, a typo, it's, it's C-O, not C-O-M, so just like that, and uh, he'll try to put some of those together during the time we're, uh, we're, we're teaching, and, um, and then at the end of this time, we're trying to preserve 10 or 15 minutes at the end to address some of those questions, and he'll formulate them and compile them, but uh, then be in charge of coming, coming up and asking. So anytime, anything I say, question comes up, you want to take a shot, bam, 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 uh, type it in, and we'll get it to you, you get it to us, and we'll, we'll try to address some of those at the end. Listen to these texts. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, to give her any help she may need from you, for she's been a benefactor of many people, including me. And greet Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet Andronicus and the woman Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So you have that text hugely affirming several women. And this text, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach Or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. In this text, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church or in public worship or in the gathering of the saints. And all of those texts come as parts of letters written by the same fully inspired author. Here's our dilemma. The Apostle Paul, who writes all of those words, appears to be speaking out both sides of his mouth. Anybody ever think like that? Anybody ever read some of the writings of Paul and come to the conclusion 
inspired as he is. Now, I would never admit this in public. I don't want to be misunderstood. It seems that the guy's almost speaking out both sides of his mouth. Because he uses women in leadership and affirms them on the one hand, then instructs that they have no place in leadership and silences them in the local church on the other hand. He uses female leaders like Phoebe and Priscilla, Yodi and Syntyche and Junia, and conducts uh, and admits in another text in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, admits and even affirms the idea that women are prophesying in the church, albeit with their heads covered, but they're standing up and speaking authoritatively with the power and office of a prophet in the church, while also demanding that they should be silent in public worship and never usurp authority of a man. Now, it's no wonder that people who want to follow Scripture, who want to see Scripture as prescriptive, no matter how uncomfortable they are with what it teaches, people, it's no wonder that people who want to yield to Scripture and let it dictate the way they live and the things they value are confused on the issue of women in leadership or divided on the issue of women in leadership because the, the textual firepower to support the argument that some hold where there is a limit to the office or the authority or the leadership a woman, a female can practice in the local body. And some of you are saying, there is? What? Yes, the, the church has been dealing with this for centuries. So there's, there's textual evidence and support for that position, but there's also textual evidence and support for those who say, no, there's, there's no limit to what a woman can do. So she can be a pastor, she can preach, she can teach men, she can be, on, be an elder, or in our case, a member of our leadership team. Here's, here's the point. The scriptural or textual support, the firepower for each of those positions, is virtually equal. You give me a verse to support one, I'll give you a verse to support the other. I give you a verse to support this, you can say yes, but over here you give me this support uh, this verse to support the other. And so no wonder people are divided and confused and we have differences of positions on, uh, on the church. Paul seems to be speaking out both side of his, sides of his mouth. And if you take a scale and you were to stack all the verses for one position on one side of the scale and all the verses for the other side of the position on this side of the scale, the scale would balance or at least maybe tip a little bit in one direction or the other. If you just went with the weight that comes from the verses or the texts supporting one or the other, and it would probably balance on the side of your personal preference or conclusion. <laughs> so this issue of the question of women in leadership in the church, I'm arguing is not going to be settled decisively by the texts. We get stuck because we keep saying, yeah, well, this text says this, and what do you do with that? And somebody else says, yes, but this text says this, so what are you going to do with that? And they balance, or virtually balance. You've got Paul appearing to speak out both sides uh, of his mouth. Now, we're not going to clear it up with the text, but I do want to give you a sense for what some of the important texts are. So we've listed some of them here. You can write those down now, and we encourage you to Look at these later. These aren't just all one-sided. These are some of the texts from which uh, each position gets its, um, gets its argument. Look at some of those. In Genesis, you have the creation 
text. Now, Paul in 1 Timothy, which is where we are here in, in, in this series, refers back to creation and the fall to support his position or his words of limitation, apparent words of limitation. You have Matthew 23. That's just a text where Jesus just kind of arguing for the male-female sort of both be inherent and being inherent in the sight of God. And he speaks with motherly language there, uh, praying uh, that a mother, uh, praying that God would protect uh, Jerusalem like a mother hen gathers. Uh, Acts 2, and you have 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, Galatians 3. The texts we're in today, 1 Timothy 2. And then the Second John text is up there because the book of Second John is actually addressed to a woman. And some are arguing, well, that's, that's a church. And others are arguing, no, it's a literal person who happens to be female. Uh, so you can go and look at that and come to your own conclusions. And then you have some of the texts that I already read, various texts where Paul affirms and thanks women. I have the asterisk here next to the name Junia because uh, some of your Bibles are, that's a female name, but some of your Bibles actually will have the name Junius, which is a man's name. The problem is the, word, the name Junius didn't show up until about the 13th century. And we have no extra biblical evidence in letters or legal documents or anything like that that refers to Junius in the male form. Junia is a female name uh, until, until the 13th century. Plus, some of the great church fathers refer to Junia all using that as a female name. So if that's true, then you have a woman... And it probably is true that it's a woman that's mentioned here. You have a woman being mentioned in the same sentence as the apostles. Paul used women in leadership, yet there are texts that seem to say he restricted uh, what they could do uh, in leadership. So I'll put the text up there. But this argument isn't going to be settled primarily by the text. That notwithstanding, it doesn't mean we won't look at some of the texts. And we're coming from the book of 1 Timothy. We come upon this test. We're going back a little bit now, obviously, because we're in chapter 3. Uh, 3 or 4, Jeff? I don't remember. We're... End, of three End of 3 next week. So uh, but we're going back because I wanted to deal with this. It comes up in 1 Timothy 2, and the text says what I read already. A woman should learn in quietness, in full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume or usurp. Uh, authority over a man. That word translated here, assume authority or usurp authority, it's, a, it's the Greek word alphantain in the infinitive form. And the problem is we have one use of that word in the Bible right there. That's it. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. And only three or four examples in extra biblical literature from that time where we also see that word being used. Scholars will go and they'll find letters and legal documents and books and all sorts of other documents with different words used in them, and from what they find in extra-biblical literature from the time, they'll, they'll establish a field of meaning, and they'll assume that the authors of Scripture would have used common language and generally used words the same way the community used words or other authors used them. So some words that we only have one example in Scripture like this one, uh, to decide what, how it should actually be translated, we depend upon that extra-biblical literature. Well, we only have three or four examples of it. And so this is a very uh, limited field of meaning, but it probably means usurp, at least from the documents we have available to us now. There's a reference of somebody authentaining, uh, usurping authority when they 
decided to take their own life. So to step beyond what is appropriate for you in that context. But the text says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to, or to uh, usurp authority over a man. She must be quiet, which could be translated orderly, but probably quiet. And then this text, this verse, nobody knows what this means. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Women will be saved through childbearing. Does that mean I have to have a child in order to be saved? Does that mean I have to have a child in order to be rescued? Rescued from what? You ready for an answer to that text? Definitive answer. You ready? No one knows. We have no idea what Paul is talking about there. It's fun to guess, and it obviously means something. And the people who received that letter, Timothy would have known exactly what Paul meant because it was obviously more context that was presupposed that he understood, but we don't have it. And that's not uncommon in Scripture. Uh, Next Sunday we'll be baptizing for the dead right over here. Anybody excited about that? And we have no idea what he meant by baptism for the dead, but there's this one obscure reference. Otherwise, why are people baptized for the dead? Obviously, those people who heard that and got that letter knew what that meant. We don't, because we don't have any other context. So we don't build a great big doctrine of baptism for the dead based on one obscure scripture. We just say, ah, we're going to live with not understanding what it means. I think this is one of those. Another one is in one of the texts that you saw on the screen. There's a challenge in the first letter to the Corinthians that women should come to church and never stand up and prophesy with their heads uncovered. And one of the reasons Paul argues that that should never happen is for the sake of the angels. What in the world does that mean? We don't know. So there are texts that we say, well, there it is, and it's fully word of God, and we have no idea what it means, a handful of them. I think this might be one of them. But anyway, you have Paul saying, I use women in powerful ways. They gave up their lives for the gospel. They stood next to me in the gospel. They're even worthy, at least in one case, to be compared with the apostles. That's a great Use of woman, a real free use of women. On the other hand, saying they should be quiet, they should be silent. I'm saying this issue is not going to be settled just by the texts because the texts are even on both sides, apparently. But let's look at the text anyway, and especially 1 Timothy, Timothy 2. Here's some things to observe at 1 Timothy 2 from the context of the book. Remember, Zan referred to the Zan Daly, who preached here three or four or five weeks ago, uh, referred to this. She said, uh, women in leadership isn't the primary point of this text. Let's remember that. Paul is mentioning this, and we'll deal with it. But he's mentioning it in passing. He's actually making a bigger point. And the point of 1 Timothy 2 and 3 is the character of a leader, not the gender of a leader. So these texts, although interesting, are offered in passing, these texts that cause us to land on this issue today. Remember that. It's also important to remember that Paul, in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, is talking to both men and women leaders. Watch. The challenges that he addressed to men are relevant for women, apparently, and vice versa, the challenges or principles that he Uh, addresses to the women are also relevant for the men. How do you say that? Well, watch how easily Paul moves back and forth, back and forth from men to women. If you can just imagine 
Mom or dad standing here talking to their two kids, two kids standing in front of them, and you would say, now, Josh, boom, 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 boom. And Becca, boom, 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 boom. And Josh, boom, boom, boom. I'm back and forth making different specific applications to each kid, but I sort of intend for both kids to listen to everything. And Paul does that here in these texts. If you step back and look at it, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, he's addressing specifics for the character of male leaders. Then in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, and in the same way, and then launches into addressing some of the character requirements for female leaders. And then he switches back to men. In chapter 3, 1 through 10, he addresses some specifics for men. In chapter 3, verse 11, jumps right back to address some of the specifics for women. So he's easily back and forth between men and women, and you almost get the feeling he's speaking to all of them at the same time, but not afraid to dig right in in detail on some of the specifics that, at least in that time, men needed to hear and women needed to hear, but they're all relevant for both men and women. So women in leadership isn't the primary point, although it's there and we're not afraid to deal with it. Secondly, Paul's talking to both men and women in leaders in that text. That's very clear. And we can suppose, I, think, I don't think it's unreasonable to come to the conclusion that he's speaking to both all at the same time, even though he addresses the specifics uh, one at a time. And then I want to point out, though, that the argument for some kind of a limitation uh, on the leadership in the leadership of women does have contextual merit. I think it has contextual merit. So my personal position, interpretive position on this, pastoral application on this, our church's position on this, and our denomination's position on this, is that there's no limitation. Women can hold any position a man can hold. Those are decided based on the spiritual gifts you have, not, not the, the gender, not your gender. However, there, there are those who would say, no, I don't agree. I think there's a limitation. And here's what I want you to walk away understanding. I respect that other position. I actually think there's a biblical argument. Now, not all of our staff would state that as strongly as I do. So we even have great and helpful conversation about these kinds of things. But I think that uh, you could argue that biblically. The scale balances, or at least just barely tilts one way or the other, if you're arguing only from the texts, the verses that are available. But you can't just walk away saying, oh gosh, all those people that hold to a different position that happen to be in our church, they're all biblically illiterate or they're all just insecure men or women who don't want to take the responsibility to lead. I just haven't found that to be the case. In fact, if you go to Genesis chapter 3 and put, put that that text up there. Uh, this, this isn't the strongest argument for them, but for instance, here, here's, here's something that someone who holds the position that there's a limitation for women. Oh, by the way, remember, we're only talking about what happens, how you work out leadership in the church. Don't jump from this to how things work in your home and in your marriage. I mean, the Bible teaches about that too, but it's, it's even... I think even less uh, clear. You make that work in your household. Whatever you all do in your household, God bless you, good luck, make it work. Uh, I'm, I'm just busy making mine work. We're talking about the church here. 
Some would argue this. They would say, well, but the Genesis 3 text that Paul refers to to support his position that there is a limitation that women should not usurp the authority of a man, they should not teach a man. And it's not just in 1 Timothy. There are a couple of places that's implied. He goes back to Genesis, and he goes to two places. He goes to creation, because he says, by the way, because you weren't crafted first, Adam was crafted first, and then woman, you were crafted out of Adam, except in the same book in Genesis, when God created mankind or humankind, he created mankind or humankind as male and female, both equally human. That's what humankind is in that creation. And he gave that creation the responsibility to, to dominate the land and name the, do all the stuff they were doing. And he doesn't create a hierarchy until after the fall. And here's where that happens. He says to the woman, now there's a curse to Satan, and then there's a curse to the woman, and then there's a curse uh, to, the, to the man, to the male. Here's the curse to the woman, because this is where Paul argues from. I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And, man, I, I remember being there, and it hurt, and I wasn't even the one going through the pains. I mean, my, my, my wife was screaming, Make the bad man stop! You know, I mean, do whatever it takes. And it was, it was painful. With pain you will give birth to children. Do you see that that's two ways of saying the same thing? That's Hebrew poetry. You have one line somehow aligned with another line, and it can say the opposite thing or the same thing, but it's clear that there's a, a connection between two lines. We, we basically rhyme with poetry. That's not all we do, but mostly that's our common poetry. Synonymous thought or contrasting thought, something like that, is how you make Hebrew poetry. And that's called a distich. So these two lines together, that would be an example of what's called a synonymous distich, a coupling. And then you have this distich. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What people are saying sometimes is, well, that really means I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. Your pain, with pain you will uh, give birth to children. Yet, you're still going to want to be intimate with your husband, even though it could result in great pain. But if that's the way you interpret that, some would argue, then this line is dangling by itself and there's no poetic connection for it. So some would say, actually, this is a, contrast, a, contract, a contrasting thought. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so they argue the desire is for to usurp your husband's place. There's this insecurity. You want to dominate, but he's still going to rule over you. Now, there are problems with that interpretation, not the least of which is that word desire probably is a reference to a, a passionate desire, a physical desire. I'm just giving you an example to say there are thoughtful ways to get to the conclusion that there's a limitation in the church for women in ministry. Not everybody that comes to that conclusion, even though I'm not among them, and our church isn't among them, but not everybody that comes to that conclusion is just an insecure person who wants to dominate and limit women. In fact, in my experience, many of the people who have the position that there's a limitation for women in leadership in the church don't necessarily like their conclusion. And they can't make sense of their conclusion they just have such a very high respect for Scripture that even when Scripture troubles them as they understand it, they're willing to yield to it. 
And I, I applaud folks for that. I don't agree with this position. I don't think it's the strongest argument, although I used to hold to it. But you've got to love and respect somebody who will say, even when my position is impossible and it's out of sync with culture and I don't even like it, if the Bible says it, I'm going to yield to it. I think I'm encouraging us to deal with grace for someone who holds to a different position than us on this subject and actually all, all subjects of Scripture. doesn't mean we have no conviction. As Jeff, Pastor Jeff was praying this morning, reminding us, it's just that there's a difference between conviction and pride. So conviction, yes. Pride, no. Anyway, just remember that. The, the argument for limitation on women doesn't, uh, doesn't come from uh, a lack of thinking. It often comes from very clear biblical thinking, with different presuppositions, and it is biblically defensible. I don't think it's the most clearly biblical defensible. So here we are. Here's where we are so far. We have Bible verses. If you throw them out there, the scale virtually balances. So both positions can be argued scripturally, and both should be respected when the other is respected. And people are thoughtful about those things. We have a reminder. We're only talking today about how leadership works in the church, it's a completely different subject if you want to start talking about uh, a husband and a wife and how things work uh, in your home. And I'm not even starting to deal with that uh, today except to say that's a different thing. Don't, don't make that transition. And the question comes then, well, then how can our church, how can you as our pastor and our whole staff come to the conclusion that there are, with all that biblical evidence, that there are no differences between no limitations for a woman uh, in leadership. So how is the covenant denomination could say we ordain women? And our, you could be comfortable with that. I mean, some pretty good Bible teachers would take a different position, right? Really respected Bible teachers. How do we get to that place? Reasons for an inclusive position, excuse me, for, a, for no limitation for women in ministry, women in leadership. First of all, we have the observation of Paul's free use of female leaders in his ministry. You, you have to admit that. If he says women ought to be silent in church, how then does he come off praising them for standing alongside him? How does he come off saying, you've got to have your head covered when you do it, but women can actually prophesy in church? In, in a worship gathering, and function authoritatively in the prophetic office. How do you make that work? And at least we have to observe and admit Paul's very free use and excited use, endorsing even use, affirming use of women leaders in his ministry. Now, that's not all there is to the argument, but we all see that. I'm just saying, here are some of the reasons to come to the conclusion that we come to. There are interpretive, secondly, there are interpretive questions about the meaning of some of the major texts that oppose a very uh, expanded, unlimited use of women. Now, there are interpretive questions about the other texts as well. But I'm just, our, I'm just taking note of some of the uh, interpretive questions. On, how are we doing, Jeff, for time? We're okay? What are we, 40? Yeah. So I need to be done in two or three minutes if we want to have 15 minutes for questions. Okay. Good luck, ladies and gentlemen. The, remember... Uh, 
grow at mcc.co. If you've got questions coming. Look at some of these. Te- they're, what? They're, they're basically two texts, maybe three, but I think two, that are pretty powerful, the best argument for a limit for women in leadership. And that's 1 Corinthians 14 and this text that we're in today, 1 Timothy 2. 1 Corinthians 14, let's look at that one first. 1 Corinthians 14, let me find it. Here we go. That's where it says, uh, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husband at home, for it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. And at first glance, that's pretty cut and dry. But in context, uh, it's not at all cut and dry. In fact, I I listened to Zan Daly's sermon from several weeks ago, and I think, I think she referenced this very uh, text and did some good work in it. But you have, in, in 1 Corinthians and also in this Timothy text, they both appear to be churches with unique, specific challenges in need of specific correction that Paul's addressing. And so what he's doing is saying, speaking to a specific thing that's that's contextualized in a local church, and then we come and read it and think he's speaking globally to all the churches. And that just might not be the case. In fact, I don't think it is the case. And in, for instance, in this Corinthians text, you have uh, women who were not, did not have access to education and did not get the freedom to gather and ask questions. And generally speaking, uh, in those days, the Jewish tradition anyway, was for a rabbi to come and teach, and it would be a very engaging experience. And so the men would have basic theological education. The rabbi would come and expound on something. And then it was encouraged for the men in the audience that were listening, sitting at his feet, to ask leading questions that invited the rabbi to go deeper in the topic that he was already addressing. And they were educated enough to know what kinds of questions they could ask. But it was considered disruptive for you to be talking about X, and then somebody asks a question about A, uh, you know, a less intelligent or less informed question. Wait a minute, wait a minute, go back 10 steps. What does this mean? It was a very basic question. That wasn't all that helpful. So you had women who were there and now given access to that education, possibly asking those kinds of questions and disrupting the progress of the teaching. And so Paul comes and says, don't do that, that's disrupting everything. Men, be personal tutors, theological tutors to your wives at home, which in and of itself is astounding in the context. So Paul, and by the way, Christianity is hugely progressive, contrary to popular belief. When it comes to women's rights and opening doors for women and and addressing the injustice of seeing women as possessions in its day, Christianity was radical, and it basically has been ever since. Unfortunately, it's also done the opposite in some minority cases, but it's radical. And part of that radical nature of Christianity, as Paul says, give access, give theological education, give your wives access to that, catch them up, bring them up to speed at home, give them tutoring, and then they can come and be involved in uh, the rest. That's probably what was going on in that text in 1 Corinthians. So, One of the reasons for an inclusive position in women, in spite of some of the texts that 
excuse me, I don't mean to use that word inclusive in the same way that we use it today. One of the, one of the reasons for, for no limitation for women in positions of leadership is because there, there are some interpretive questions about some of the major texts that would argue the opposite. How about the 1 Timothy 2 text? Well, in, in Timothy, in Ephesus, there was, there was a proliferation of heresy and crazy teaching and for some reason in that particular town, it found life in the, fem- in the female population. That's not true everywhere, but in that particular town, because of some of the, 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 the worship that went on in the secular population, and the fact that women, um, in some cases, were even viewed as superior over men, um, and, and they brought that into the church when they became Christians, there needed to be a correction. But the correction was probably aimed only at Ephesus. So Paul wouldn't have been saying, I want women to be silent in every single church that ever ever launched. But he's saying, for Ephesus, for Ephesus, cool it. Because you weren't created first, Adam was, by the way. Why do you think you're better than men? As a matter of fact, if anything's true, the opposite is true. He's not saying that's true. But he's trying to correct that, uh, that idea. And if you look at several texts, like all through 1 Timothy 1, like in verse 6, 7, 19, 20, and then in 1 Timothy 5 and in 1 Timothy 6, and even in 2 Timothy like 2.17 and 3, 6 through 7, you, you see all these references to heresy. So something heretical was going on in Ephesus in ways that it wasn't going on in, in the same ways in other churches. And we know from history that, that there was some heretical teaching and prolific proliferation of that heresy among the women of that time, it may well have been that Paul was simply addressing Ephesus and not all of the churches. Now, is that a for sure, absolute, certain thing? No, that would be disingenuous to say that. Remember, I said, if you put the scale out there, at best, the texts lean one way or the other, but it's virtually balanced when you're asking the question, what does the Bible really teach about women in leadership? Should there be a limitation or not? You cannot conclude based solely on the text because the text are equal. It's almost as though Paul is speaking out both sides of his mouth. So why then do we come down on the side of no limitation for women? It's because of the theological contributions to the discussion. So we recognize the text respect both positions in terms of their biblical viability. Uh, Some of us respect one more than the other. But the theological contributions, and basically around two issues of theology. First, the theology of kingdom and curse. Paul goes to kingdom and curse when he argues his point. And the theology of the perspicuity of Scripture, which simply talks of speaks of Scripture's ability to be clear to anybody who needs to read it. So the, the Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture says this. You don't have to have a doctorate in theology to understand Scripture. Anybody can understand what they, as much as they need to understand of the Bible. It's there and clear for you to the degree you need it to be clear. And the more you develop, the more demanding uh, you are intellectually, the more complex, but also clear at that level that it is. It's per the perspicuity of Scripture. Uh, The kingdom of God and the curse. Paul argues for a limitation on women, if he argues for one at all in 1 Timothy chapter 2, based on the curse. 
Women have to be silent. They shouldn't usurp authority. Why? Because, because it was the woman who was deceived, not the man. And Paul knows when he says that. That's not actually accurate. He's, he's addressing this part of the truth to the need that that church has to hear the truth. Uh, if anything, the men are worse off than the women. She at least got deceived directly by Satan. We got deceived indirectly through her. Who's, who's more duped there? So that's not the point he's trying to make. He's trying to make a case, but if he makes that case based on the curse, the, the theology of kingdom is this. At the resurrection, Jesus inasmuch as said this, everything changes today. At creation, there was no limitation. It was never God's design. Your partner's in managing creation. And then at the fall, the curse brings in this hierarchy, or apparent hierarchy. But at resurrection, Jesus says, we now have the downbeat of the kingdom of God being here on earth. One day, everything's going to change. And in between now and that day, we're moving toward that change. So he announces this, to the degree that we can be, what we one day will be, we should be. And so we're saying this, if Paul was arguing for a limitation of women in leadership, and I'm not saying he was, but if he was, it's based in the curse. And he knows full well because he spent so much theological energy explaining this, that all of that has now started to be reversed. We are going back to fixing and making all things right, putting us in a position that God always wanted us to be in. It's over. The beginning of being over has started. So to the degree that we can reverse the curse and a new heaven and a new earth is coming and things will be as they were always intended to be, we should reverse the curse. Now, I can't stop the law of entropy. I can't stop metal from rusting if it's left out in the weather and I can contribute to a healthier economy, but I'm not going to undo this downward slide that tends to be happening and things do tend to decay. But you know what? We can say that part of the curse, women having a limit in leadership, is over. To the degree we can be what we will be, we should be. Now listen, somebody else has a different position than that and it's a biblically viable position, I think. So it should be respected and heard. For our church and our denomination, for the reasons I'm trying to explain we're taking a different position. The other one is the perspicuity of Scripture. I need to finish this, this real fast. If the Scripture is uh, clear where we need it to be clear, then there's a logical conclusion that can also be made, a parallel in, in a sense. When, a, when an interpretative, interpretative conclusion is severe, has severe consequences when it's applied, then the text ought to be severely clear. Does that make sense? For instance, let me give you an example. There's only one way to Jesus. All those who do not come to God through Jesus Christ are lost. Would you say that's a very severe interpretive conclusion? I mean, that's, that's got some serious consequences if that's what that means. But it's severely clear that that's what Scripture teaches. So things like the lordship of Jesus, the need 
to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, issues of sexual purity and all. There, there, there's not like a balanced scale when the texts are thrown out there. It's wham like this. Scripture's severely clear. And it ought to be when there are severe consequences for any particular interpretive application. When the scale is balanced, though, with the texts, like it is, I think, in women in leadership, then it's incumbent upon us to take the most gracious, broadest position. I'm going to live with that as a pastor. Now, hear me. I might be just wrong as can be. But when I look, when we look as a pastoral team, and we say, let me see, the text, well, they kind of go either way. If we say we believe that there's a limitation of leadership for the female population of our church, even though that's biblically arguable to some degree, boy, the outcome of that, the application of that is very severe because I'm saying, Joni, you might have spiritual gifts came to you from the Holy Spirit, but you may not use them here. That's a severe interpretive application when the text isn't nearly as clear, severely clear as it needs to be. I would rather live with being wrong before the Lord because we're responsible for everything we teach here. That'll be a fun, that'll be a fun day when we get held accountable for that. <clears throat> but I'd rather say to the Lord, I depend upon your mercy for being, letting women be, for, for, for letting sisters lead too much than have to depend upon your mercy and forgiveness for restricting the brilliant gifts of some of the women in the church. Now, I might be wrong. I don't think so. All I want you to do is walk out of here today saying this. At least I understand why our church does what it does with women in leadership. That's all. Just understand that. But that's what we're doing. That's where we're going. That's what we believe. Um, now we have a few minutes for some questions. Yeah, this was, uh, thank you for your contributions to that. My phone blew up. It was a really stupid idea to now try to figure out how to capitalize all these. It was a great <laughs> idea on Tuesday morning in our staff meeting. Um, well, it's a better idea when there's 15 minutes left than when there's four. That's huh? right. We'll take one minute on each of these and we'll take a few minutes. We can go a couple minutes over. A whole bunch of questions came around this idea, and that is, you know, how, how do we know that this isn't just a slippery slope down the road that culture defines how we interpret the Bible. Is that bad? Or should culture define how we interpret the Bible? There's Some people came on the positive side and said, well, this is one of the evidences that we just will believe what we want to believe and disregard Scripture. Other people said, well, maybe Paul was inconsistent because different cultures, different churches mm -hmm. had different needs. Yeah. So how, how do we deal with the, is this a slippery slope and we're Justifying? How do we know how to handle that? Well, one of the ways we deal with that is to recognize that culture can never be allowed to, to determine what the Bible says. But culture always has and always will puts pressure on us to, um, to, to deal with different issues that the Bible addresses. So the culture says, hey, it is now relevant for you to deal with this. All of a sudden, this is an issue. We are forced to go to Scripture and say, wait, what does this say? So it does... Help, it informs us about what we need to address from Scripture, but it can't teach us what Scripture, uh, it can't dictate what Scripture uh, teaches. And we're always involved in appreciation for context when we interpret Scripture, and culture helps us, uh, challenges us to understand context. We have to admit, though, that we always come to every interpretive challenge with bias. That's why 
Scripture used to be interpreted in a group, never alone. Today, we pastors tend to go into their office, shut the door, and figure out what it says, and come and preach. But when you have five or six of you around saying, well, wait, what about this, and what about that? That's, that's a safety net, really, for, uh, for that. But there is a tendency to let culture dictate what Scripture means instead of letting culture say, here's what you have to deal with today. So the question that people are writing, like, why was it then, why is it so unclear for us? I mean, how do we know which stuff in our Bible is going to be just for Ephesus and Paul in this church, mm. and which is for the Corinthians and just them, and which was for us until 1951, and which is for us today? How do we know what to do when we're reading our Bibles? What we tend to want to do is to create a law so that every, we don't have to ever think, and there's nothing that's delicate and challenging. Well, we don't get to do that if you want to be an intelligent Christian. Um, if you're in a church that's involved not only in the heart and the hands, but using the head too and developing that or growing our own ability to hear God, you don't get that option. But you know, the closer you get in everything in life, the closer you get on issues that are delicate to the truth, the squirrelier it gets. And it's a squirrely question to ask the question, wait a minute, what was cultural and what's Beyond culture, it's always true. When it's on the extreme, it's not that hard. So when he says women should not come into the church without or prophesy in church without having their heads covered, uh, look around you. I mean, even Bob Hess has his head uncovered, but that's, that's more about baldness. than. <laughs> we don't have any women in here. Uh, we have one or two ladies that love hats, but that's more of a stylistic thing. Is that cultural, or should we be reading the Bible and saying, how dare you come in here without your head covered? So that's on the extremes, that's easier to understand than on the more nuanced uh, applications of culture. So to be aware of that and, and asking the question, wait a minute, what's cultural and what's not uh, is part of the, it, it, ultimately it's an interpretive question. And other theologians that you're doing interpretation with or other pastors would say, I don't know, Greco, you are so lost trying to prove your point, you called that cultural when it's not, and here's why. So you have that back and forth, and you have a better, uh, better option of not missing that. And may I add something to that? Yeah. It, friends, when we study scriptures, we always remember that this was not a magic book that fell out of heaven with 3,800 precepts about how to live. This was a book inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to authors to then give to recipients at a certain time and a certain mm -hmm. place for specific reasons. It's always cultural to begin with. And then we say, how do we apply that in our culture? So in other words, Paul wrote at a certain time to certain people with a certain set of situations going on at that church. It's always cultural to begin with. Then we look at other uh, biblical evidence to try to figure out, is that now something that will be in all cultures for all times or just for that culture for that time? Does that make sense? Yeah, and, we, and as an interpreter, you can manipulate that in the bad sense of the word. That's possible. You can, you can abuse it. All we're trying to do is to say, hey, if Paul were standing over here watching us interpret, because we're trying to decide what did he mean by what right. he said there it is. Yeah. in that context, and then the preacher or teacher's question is, what bridge can we build from that, uh, what he taught, to bridge of relevance to today? How does that inform how we live and think today. And we're thinking with this in mind. If Paul's standing here watching us interpret, which way is his head wagging? Is he saying, yeah, right? Or is he saying, That's no right. stinking way. That's not what I I did meant. not mean right. anything like that. Right. And so we have this 
this monitor kind of going on in our heads. And we're here's, capable of getting it Here's wrong. the hardest question you're going to take. You have 30 seconds to answer this. Um, and it's going to just, I think you're probably just going to share your presuppositions, Art, about the nature of Scripture. The question was, uh, there's some thinking out there that maybe the text uh, was not written by Paul, but was, when we use the word, corrupted over time by different mm -hmm. theologies, different theological thinking. And that's why it looks like Paul's inconsistent with himself, mm. because it wasn't all Paul's thinking. It was added at a later time. It wasn't Paul's words. It was somebody 500 years later going, what? Women can't teach. And then they wrote yeah. that in there. As is the case with the suspicions about the name Junia to Junius. Right. right. So what is, what, can you talk about your presuppositions about whether the text is something we can be trusted as from Paul to Ephesus in AD 63? And refinements of that kind of thinking. Like some people who are believers, you, they're Christians by the same definition as any of us, say, well, the Gospels are inspired. The epistles are commentaries on the inspired part of the Bible. There, there, there are all sorts of um, uh, versions of that sort of thinking. Here's our church's position. From front to back, the Bible is 100% authoritative and inspired so by, by the Holy Spirit. So when Paul wrote, he wrote under the guidance and influence of the Holy Spirit the same way the writers of the Gospels uh, uh, wrote that. And that's why we're stuck with our, our dilemma, you know, with our, we're in such a, a, a quandary. Um, but we do believe that there is evidence, there's manuscript evidence available for us to be able to trust that this document is ancient and uncorrupted throughout the yeah, middle, middle called, ages, Yeah, that's called textual criticism. The, 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 that's the science of it. And there are documents, for instance, that we know were from the end of the first or beginning of the second century, little fragments, and we have copies of the same text that are hundreds and hundreds of years older, and when we compare them, there hasn't been much change, and we find the more we get, the more we find in caves and, and things like that, the more we realize that, the earth, that what we have in our Bible is accurate, is exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, the textual criticism. So it's not a brainless assumption or conclusion right. that what we have is dependable. Um, and that's, a presupposition, and that's that. a presupposition we have when we come to Paul's teaching. More study on that, for sure, if you're interested in it. Maybe we'll do that as an MCCU topic again. Where do we oh, get yeah, our Bible, and how do we trust it? We've taught that course every couple of years around here. I'll leave you with this, Art, and you can um, answer it, let people go, and, and bless us. And that is, somebody wrote, I love this, they thought, you know what? Appreciate the dialogue. What's the significance, though, to our local body now for women in ministry in forwarding our mission the mission of MCC to the community and to the world. So as we talk about this, what's the relevance to saying, all right, well, who are we today and where are we going and how does that impact us? And you can give us whatever charge you here's, want. Here's one of the ways that's relevant. I just, we just don't think it's fair for us to say we're about theological diversity within the limits of orthodoxy and the, and the, the kind of Christian diversity of thought that that invites and then not at least explain, we think it's intelligently, um, why, we're doing, why we're taking a particular position. So on the one hand, we're asking you, if you have a different view than the one I just presented, we want you to be part of our church. Yet never, never at least give you the understanding or the explanation for why we come to the conclusion uh, we come to. We want you to leave here today thinking, I may not agree, I have questions, but number one, I know my pastors respect the position I have. They could actually argue the position I have. And I at least logically understand the biblical connections that get them to the position our church is going to take. 
Uh, it's relevant at least in that way. Because I know we have folks who would say, no, I love you and everything, and you guys are all fun and cool, but I don't see it that way at all. I think the Bible's clearly tipped on the biblical scale. One, you know, this way, and you just don't want to admit it. Well, I hear you, um, and you may even be right. I don't think so. But it's relevant because we want to move someplace together in the same direction. Our conviction is God doesn't give some gifts to men to be able to use them and some gifts to women that they have to suppress. We're not saying men don't lead. Men lead. Men just aren't the only ones who lead. That's what we're trying to say. And if you walk out today saying, I understand that, uh, even if you don't say I agree with it, then this is relevant because we're going to move forward in harmony with respect and humility and conviction all at the same time. Yeah? Okay. Well, listen, why don't you receive this blessing and then we'll be dismissed uh, seven minutes late. Stand and receive this benediction. Yes, God, we dare to ask questions. We dare to admit that we have differences of opinion and we dare you to send your Holy Spirit to give us the strength to remain unified and together and to prove that there is something to Jesus that's more powerful than the things that divide us. On the one hand, God, you know our hearts. We have no interest in compromising Scripture and capitulating to culture when the things that culture is teaching are damaging to human beings. But on the other hand, Lord, we hold our convictions with some level of humility and dependence and faith. Bind us together. Challenge our thinking. Open our hearts. And unleash us on a broken world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.